Greetings, physical geographers. Welcome to episode two, week three of our podcast for fall 2020. You can now subscribe and receive alerts about the latest weekly episode by going to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. These podcasts will build upon each other. So if you haven't yet listened to episode one on energy and matter, then I recommend putting on your earbuds and go for a half hour walk while catching up with what we talked about. In that podcast episode, I talk about the difference between derechos and hurricanes. My environmental geography students and I collaborated on a guest column recently published on the topic in this week's Sunday edition of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. We have had quite a chaotic start to the semester, but it is my hope that the management of this course will improve quickly as I learn to better meet your needs. There is no sense in pretending that this semester will go perfectly and according to plan. Putting together an effective course, to paraphrase the words of Joyce Carol Oates, can at the beginning feel like pushing a peanut with your nose across a very dirty floor. Think of this course as a living painting. At the beginning, it might look like splatters of paint here and there with little or no distinguishable cohesiveness. But as the course progresses through the upcoming weeks, that painting will reorganize itself into a scenic landscape. There are a few things I've learned in particular. First, that there are multiple definitions of a hybrid course. Some of you might have been confused by my class, which has you in a lecture hall one day a week, then listening to a podcast and completing many assignments on your own time. From talking with some of you, I've learned that other instructors have two meetings per week, with half the students meeting in class and the other half zooming in. That must be incredibly confusing, and I feel for you. Starting this week, I hope to improve my communication of your expectations as we move forward. Second, I learned that many of you are not used to the online format. It is much easier to come to class multiple times per week to stay current with all your assignments and to ask questions. Bubbling in a test within a classroom is much more straightforward than setting reminders in your calendar to complete an online assessment. That is why I offer virtual office hours five days a week from 11 a.m. to noon. That time is for you. Please set up an appointment to ask questions, seek clarification, and engage in an intellectual conversation. I love talking geography with students, so you're by no means wasting my time. If you feel lost, then let's get you back on track. Third, there's a lot of uncertainty with how the semester will change in upcoming weeks. A number of you have been asked to undergo quarantine, even if you might disagree with the situation or the university's rationale. It is not a good feeling to recognize that there are things out of your control, but the situation offers an important life lesson that plenty of things exist beyond our control, and what matters is how we respond to them. Setbacks and failures are our most important teachers, not our accomplishments. At first, we might respond with anxiety and anger or indifference, but in my experience, dwelling on these feelings does not fix the problem. To extend beyond these impulsive reactions, we might devote ourselves to practicing patience, resilience, and responsibility. Many of your instructors are enduring sleepless nights responding to inquiries, 
prepping lectures, managing COVID cases, and grading. Why do we do it? Because we believe that education matters and that not even a global pandemic should quell our students' curiosity. Every one of my podcasts will end with three mantras. They deserve to be mentioned here. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things. If you apply each one of these mantras this semester, then your college experience will not just be tolerable, it might just transform your life. Today, we are going to talk about how pressure causes air to move through the atmosphere, how air behaves differently depending on where you're at, and how the relationship between motion and moisture in the atmosphere interrelate to generate changes in the environment. We'll end by identifying the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and why this event is important to physical geographers. I will talk about the relationship between pressure and moisture through the life of geographer Dr. Marvin Creamer. Dr. Creamer died about three weeks ago on August 12, 2020, at the age of 104. Dr. Creamer was the first person to sail around the globe without instruments to guide his way. Others who circumnavigated the globe, such as Francis Drake in 1577 and Ferdinand Magellan in 1519, brought at the very least an astrolabe and compass. Modern day sailors enjoy complex global positioning systems technologies to help them determine how far out at sea they are. Dr. Kramer set sail off the coast of New Jersey in 1982, making use of none of those instruments. For emergencies, he did keep a duffel bag of a radio, clock, sextant, and compass. He never used them during the one-year trek around the globe. He almost wrecked twice, sending almost half of the ship's mast underwater. During a storm near Tasmania, he pulled down soaked sails with his shoulder out of socket. Nevertheless, Dr. Kramer continued on, munching on canned hamburger meat throughout the trip. Why did Dr. Kramer decide to make such an expedition at the ripe age of 66? It was because the ancient seafarers were perfectly capable of doing so without the use of instruments. Vikings, Polynesians, and Chinese traders looked at the stars and the sun's position to determine their latitude and longitude. They also looked for signs within their environment. One sign ancient seafarers used was the color of the sea. Dark blue means deep waters, and green means that plankton are in abundance. Also, depending on where you are, the direction of prevailing winds and the weather could give you a sense of where you are located on Earth. When gas molecules, water vapor, and aerosols move from one place to another, they create wind. Our entire atmosphere constantly circulates the air. One breath of air contains trillions of air molecules, about as many galaxies as there are estimated in the universe. On an average day, we breathe in about two pounds of oxygen. The breaths we take were also likely breathed by some stranger in Siberia, a laundromat worker in Bratislava, Slovakia, a surfer off the coast of Australia, 
and socialite Kim Kardashian. Winds are an important phenomenon to understand our relationship to the world because they set our atmosphere in motion, influence the weather, and impact our livelihoods. The air circulates differently in the atmosphere, depending on where you are in the world. Aboard his sailboat, Dr. Creamer spent days in the doldrums, which refers to a thin belt around the equator, called the Intertropical Convergence Zone, or ITCZ. Visualize stretching a really wide rubber band around a globe's equator. That's the general area where the ITCZ hangs out. I'll use doldrums in ITCZ interchangeably, but they mean the same thing. Doldrums denotes a kind of dreary, gloomy, boring experience. That is because sailors would find themselves in still, windless waters with cloudy skies and no way to judge their position on Earth. Insulation, energy from the sun, is concentrated here for much of the year, which causes water from the ocean to evaporate, rise up, condense, and create clouds. The ITCZ's position does change slightly during the year, migrating north when the sun is overhead in the northern hemisphere and verging south when the sun shines in the southern hemisphere. So depending on the time of year, you'll have to shimmy your rubber band farther north or south. This zone is important because it is where trade winds from the north and south hemispheres converge. Historically, trade winds have been important ways to sail from continent to continent. That's how sailors and merchants could travel from the Americas to Asia, bringing goods to sell. To get from the northern trade winds to the south, however, you have to pass through the stagnant, dreary doldrums. Why do these trade winds converge at the intertropical convergence zone? Because the doldrums is an area of low pressure making the atmosphere there unstable, sucking higher pressure air from its surroundings like a vacuum cleaner. That is why areas with lower atmospheric pressure than their surroundings tend to create ideal conditions for cloud formation and storms. Think about the times you have looked at a weather map. When you watch the TV meteorologist discussing a map of a storm, does that storm's core have a big H for high pressure attached to it? No. Typically, you'll see the heavily makeup meteorologist directing your vision to the big L, signifying an area of low pressure. Low atmospheric pressure represents nature's vacuum. Consider the metaphor of running with the bulls, a fun spectator sport in Spain, but a potentially deadly event for participants. When the bulls are released from their cages, they get funneled through city streets, chasing after people wearing bread bandanas. Running with the bulls usually ends with both bulls and people sprinting into a large arena where participants try to escape. Connect these chaotic city streets with the areas of high pressure. The things that comprise high pressure air, the bulls and the people, are all directed toward the area of low pressure, which is the arena. Movement from high pressure areas to low pressure areas helps generate wind that circulates around our planet. Isn't that incredible? The steeper the difference between high and low pressure, 
the more unstable the atmosphere is and the more likely we are to receive strong winds and severe weather. When air from high pressure areas gets sucked up by these areas of low pressure, those winds bring along with them a whole lot of water vapor. In large doses, that water vapor can condense to form clouds. Latent heat, what I like to call storm caffeine, can be released to create more instability, excite the energy in the atmosphere, and generate severe weather. Some of the most severe storms happen with what meteorologists call an atmospheric bomb, which signifies a drop in at least 24 millibars of atmospheric pressure in 24 hours. That's a big deal, even though those numbers may not signify anything to you. In the end, just know this. When the pressure is low, clouds are going to show. When the pressure is high, expect clear skies. Now that we understand the relationship between high and low pressure systems, let's turn our attention primarily to moisture in the atmosphere. Although clouds show when the pressure is low, that does not mean that the moisture behaves the same wherever you go. You must consider the context of the place. When there's too much water, precipitation can totally transform a landscape. For example, the 2017 Category 4 storm, Hurricane Harvey, dropped 127 billion tons of water on Houston, Texas, enough for 26,000 New Orleans Superdomes to be filled to the brim. The sheer weight of that water caused Houston to sink a couple centimeters. Too little water can also be just as destructive. Recent years have seen an unprecedented period of dryness in the Arctic tundra, normally an icy, frigid place with very short periods of time when it is warm enough for plants to grow. Drought has caused the plants there to die, dry out, and catch fire more easily. Who could have guessed that in this age we would be fighting fires in places like northern Siberia? Too much water and too little water can cue you into the characteristics of that climate. The hot, dry desert of Western Sahara in Africa sits right next to the Atlantic Ocean, yet it receives less than four inches of rain per year. Why is that? The Azores High is located off the Atlantic coast of the Sahara and is named after a group of nearby volcanic islands owned by Portugal. The Azores High is a continuous area of high pressure during winter and spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Remember, when pressure is high, expect clear skies. Thus, Western Sahara receives very little precipitation because moisture-filled air is being propelled elsewhere. The Saharan Desert is literally sitting next to a vast ocean that it can barely use. When Dr. Creamer's sailboat approached the coast of the Saharan Desert in the 80s, he noticed red streaks of sand sticking to the sails after the morning dew. The lack of moisture keeps soils from being tethered to the ground, which is why wind can easily transport sand to distant places, like on the masts of Dr. Creamer's sailboat. Let's look at a tropical place that receives a lot of seasonal rain, India, located in South Asia. Indians have two seasons, a rainy season 
in a dry season. The technical term for this seasonality is monsoon. The monsoon happens because all the things we've talked about previously, the ITCZ, high pressure, low pressure, and moisture in the air. Recall that the ITCZ is that band of low pressure that forms around the equator where the water is warmest, and that it can move north or south depending on where the sun is shining during the year. Here's how monsoons work in India. When June comes around, Indians of the Hindu faith sacrifice a goat to the gods to ensure a productive rainy monsoon. June marks the start of India's rainy season, which lasts through September. In 2019 alone, India received a national average of more than three feet of rain. All of that rain can create flooding hazards for local communities, but it can also help nourish water-hungry cash crops like rice. There is a region of India that grows so much rice that people deem it the rice bowl. As a result, people depend on monsoons to bring the gift of rain for their crops. Dry season occurs from October to May, a period of time when much less rainfall nourishes India's water resources and agriculture. Where the ITCZ is located will determine where the rain goes. During the rainy season, the ITCZ shimmies north to crosscut mainland India. The ITCZ moves here because the sun shines more directly on the northern hemisphere. Low pressure from the ITCZ sucks up hot and humid air steaming from the Arabian Sea, Bay of Bengal, and the surrounding Indian Ocean. Because of the ITCZ's constant low pressure, India receives more precipitation during that time. But the ITCZ band then travels south from October to May, when the sun more directly shines on the southern hemisphere. When this happens, all of a sudden, India becomes an area of high pressure. Highs create clear skies, so India experiences less precipitation. So, that is how a monsoon functions. Differences between high and low pressure. Annually, the ITCZ's low pressure zone shifts north and south, taking with it the potential for clouds and showers. Places just outside of the low pressure zone tend to be left high and dry, with their air feeding into the ITCZ. During this podcast, we learned about how the atmosphere moves through differences in air pressure. We also learned about how high pressure and low pressure interact to create storms and droughts. Then we applied our knowledge to examine how monsoons work in South Asia. I end by letting you know that this past weekend marked the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, a Category 5 hurricane that inundated 80% of New Orleans with water. The geographers learned much from this storm, which we will get into when we explore in-depth severe weather. All right, that's all I have for you. Be curious, explore often, and pursue meaningful things. Thank you.